situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines. Today is May the 17th. Oh, no, it's the 20th. 21st. We have some uh, technical difficulties, folks. I had my my cell phone here and I was also (laughs) looking at some things, so uh, thus the confusion. But now that we've gotten that straightened out, uh, I'm your host for today. My name is Ilan. And with me in the studio is Harrison Kelly. Hello. Joe and Neil are on special report this week, so uh, they will not be joining us. We'll be finding out soon what they've discovered on their um, investigative uh, journeys. Uh, We have a a few very interesting stories to cover this week. Uh, Harrison, uh, we were discussing this a little earlier. We have, um, well... One of the biggest, of course, is the absolute hysteria we've been seeing on the part of the mainstream media here in the U.S. to uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's visit with Trump in the Oval Office. Um, And that's kind of sprawled out in all kinds of different directions. We'll be discussing that. Uh, There's also been the... um, We're going to follow up a little bit today on the Comey uh, firing, um, its implications, as well as some false statements that have been been attributed to Donald Trump in a continued effort to to smear him. And uh, and then I think we want to discuss uh, the recent developments with the uh, Seth Rich death. This was the uh, DNC... um, employee who was killed, um, shot in cold blood several months ago uh, during the height of the uh, U.S. presidential um, election here in the U.S. But um, before we launch into a discussion of of what we've been seeing um, with Lavrov and all this hysteria uh, regarding his visit with Trump in the uh, the Oval Office – um, I just, I was thinking about it this morning, Harrison, and, and I was, uh, I was recalling, um, an interaction I had with a teenage friend actually, uh, when I was about 15 and, uh, I just wanted to share it because I, I think that it, it kind of puts this into perspective a little bit for me, um, in terms of, um, human dynamics, especially when you're dealing with, uh, with unstable characters. Anyway, basically what happened was this. Um, I, uh, I had a friend who you might say was, um, controlling. And, um, one day I, uh, I was asked by my mom to assist with painting the apartment. And of course there's all these things you have to do. And uh, 
And I told my friend this who wanted to hang out. Hey, you know, I can't hang out today. I have these things to do. And what he proceeded to do was call me at home and harangue me for not hanging out with him. So I I said, no, I, I told you I have to be here to help my mom with the painting. This is something I have to do. I can't hang out today. And uh, and he continued to call and pester me about it. And at some point, my mom, overhearing this, got on the phone with him and and said, no, he's really here. He He has to, you know, stay here and help me with the painting. Anyway, it wasn't until a number of years later that I realized um, that this friend of mine, so-called, was uh, actually a pretty nuts. Yeah. Uh, that that he not only didn't accept this explanation from me, but my mom felt compelled to get in on it and and verify that indeed I was telling the truth and couldn't hang out, not because I didn't want to or was or was shunting him aside, but because there was something more important to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that kind of brings us into this this uh, this mess that we're seeing in the White House, I think. Yeah, some, some crazy people. Yes. So this is the backstory. So, of course, the whole Russia thing has been uh, the go-to excuse and talking point and really kind of attack spear that the entire U.S. establishment, whether Democrat or, you know, never Trump or Republican or media, uh, have been using against Trump in order to derail uh, his presidency. Because in the big picture, um, I think a lot of these people were never expecting Trump to be president. First of all, they thought he would never be president. And, uh, you know, they thought they had it in the bag with Hillary Clinton, who with whom they were fine, you know, being uh, in office. But president was like, no way, uh, no way, Trump. So when he actually won, um, you know, against all odds and against everything that they believed, um, that was kind of a, a huge, uh, a huge blow for all of these people. And so from the very beginning, they've been working nonstop just to make things as difficult and uh, contentious as possible. <clears throat> and just as the, you know, according to that book, uh, Shattered on the Hillary Clinton campaign, apparently uh, Podesta and Mook, these two people working on the campaign for Clinton, decided the day after the election that they were going to use Russia as the excuse for why uh, Clinton lost. And, they, and that has been happening ever since. So in the first weeks of the presidency, the Trump presidency, that was the still the, the go-to talking point. And then it kind of died down for a few weeks after Trump's, uh, you know, Tomahawk cruise missile launch on that Syrian Air Force base. And everyone seemed to be cool with that. It was like, oh, great. You know, it was like the, the pressure was relieved and everyone could just like rejoice in the absolute beauty of American bombs falling on some foreign country. It's like that's what uh, these people kind of live for. So it was kind of a, a sacrificial offering to the insane, um, you know, bloodthirst that uh, that these people have. It's, it's it's some kind of like unique pathology, I think, in uh, in modern society that these, <laughs> you know, these people just kind of you picture them like in their in their living rooms, just you know, writhing in in 
some kind of ecstatic pleasure that you know that comes from any kind of yes bombing of, of a foreign country. And, and, and to underscore that, what does Trump do? He drops this mother of all bombs mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, a completely useless gesture, mm -hmm. threatens uh, North Korea yeah. uh, with action. So, yeah, I mean, they, they must have been uh, orgiastic in their celebration of, of American uh, military bluster and, yeah. and, and gestures. Which is funny because, you know, we were, we've been analyzing these events as they happen and, you know, coming from a an analytical perspective that doesn't really have any, um, you know, any dog in the fight, we could see that these were kind of more symbolic gestures than anything. And that, um, you know, ultimately these people who were so, uh, so ecstatic would probably be disappointed if they actually could see, you know, what was really going on and that these weren't the major kind of operations that they, you know, that they really want. Mm -hmm. And so naturally those, um, you know, that uh, that joy and that pleasure died down a bit, and one of the things that one of the dynamics that was going on as these were happening was that um, you know right bef before these events, before you know the the, the big bomb droppings, uh, Trump had continued to to be saying you know nice things about the Russians. Oh yeah, we've got to work with the Russians. He they the administration even started talking about Assad and how he could stay, and that you know we're not interested in regime change. And that was too far. <coughs> Excuse me. So then these things happen, and then the line kind of changes. You know, everyone starts talking trash about Assad and kind of scaling back a bit on what they're saying about Russia. Then all this stuff happens, and then, you know, after the the hysteria kind of dies down for a bit, then um, it comes back again. And Trump and everyone starts saying, oh, well, you know, we've got to talk with Russia. We've got to do these things. And, and they have that meeting with uh, Levrov and Kislyak in the Oval Office. And right there, um, that in itself is just, I mean, can you imagine seeing a picture of your president with the second most evil person in the world in the Oval Office? And, you know, just the, the fear and, the, and the, the loathing that must, you know, enter in the hearts and minds of, of, you know, those defenders of American democracy. It must have been one of the low points of their lives. And so, of course, they came back full steam with uh, trying to just come up with any kind of ludicrous nonsense they could. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, right after the event, the first thing that they could come up with um, was just that um, this had happened. So they, they focused on, you know, we talked about it last week, I think, um, the pictures that the, the Russians released of the meeting and then the, the just absolute nonsense that was in the press in those days afterwards, like, oh my God, the, the Russians were in, you know, our, our inner sanctum and they probably left recording devices behind and, and, uh, you know, just confirmation that the Russians were controlling Trump, which was all kind of, kind of just transparent nonsense. I mean, it was just the, the typical stuff that you'd expect, you know, these so-called, you know, humans and journalists to come up with. Mm -hmm. But then they got they got something, and the Washington Washington Post, um, you know, managed to to speak with someone maybe who might have either read a transcript or been in on the meeting or somehow they knew what the meeting was uh, and what was discussed. And they said that Trump had talked to Lavrov about this um, you know this terror threat that was the the impetus behind the decision some weeks ago 
um, maybe even a month or two ago, I can't, it's been a while, um, to ban the use of laptops on flights um, to and from certain countries and certain airlines. And apparently he had shared some top secret, you know, classified information on on this threat and how it came to um, how it came how that how that intelligence was received and by sharing this information um, Trump had potentially put at risk these intelligence sources and the relationship with the country in question who had um, who had come in who had gotten this intelligence and so oh my god this was a big scandal um, you know huge story um, Trump, you know, revealing top secret classified information to the Russians. And first of all, of course, how could he say anything to the Russians? And second, um, you know, all those things I just mentioned. So then it comes out in the next, you know, day or two, more details start being revealed about this whole story. And uh, well, in the initial Washington Post report, of course, it, there weren't um, any specific details because the Washington Post said, oh, we have these details. We know this secret information, but we can't publish it because that would be just too much. But they said that what it had to do was that Trump had mentioned the name of the city where this plot was, um, you know, going into motion. And that there was this, uh, this intelligence that had strongly hinted that ISIS was developing new, um, you know, bombing uh, techniques and capabilities that would enable them to use laptops as bombs and that they were planning to, you know, explode them in airline, in, on air flights, international flights. <clears throat> so this and that, that those details were enough to reveal the source um, and the country that were responsible for this intelligence gathering. They also said that the name of this city was was significant, as if somehow this city in in Islamic State territory would be enough to reveal the details. So, you know, that got, a, you know, me thinking and a bunch of people thinking, well, you know, how could that work? Because Islamic State is just in Syria and Iraq, and, I mean, there are only a few, you know, major cities under their control. Raqqa, uh, Mosul, uh, which is, you know, they're losing... And, you know, a few other minor cities in, in Syria and Iraq. But, I mean, you know, which, which of those countries would reveal anything? I mean, because obviously if it's an Iraqi country, you could easily say that the, the source would have been some kind of Iraqi intelligence that, they, that they'd received. And, of course, the Americans work with the Iraqis, so that would be, you know, no no-brainer question about how they could have gotten it. And in Syria, um, you know, the, Syri the, the, U the Americans are working with the SDF. They've probably got spies within ISIS, in, in ISIS territory. Um, even the Syrians uh, probably have um, intelligence capabilities. And even the Russians, you know, through, the, through their Chechens, the Chechens have been rumored to have, you know, um, deep cover agents within ISIS. And any of these sources could have been the source of the intelligence because, of course, you can have... It could have been the result of a counterintelligence operation, you know, run on Syrian intelligence or just, uh, you know, some American agent, uh, what, you know, uh, um, you know, an Arab, perhaps, agent working for the Americans, I mean by that. And none of that really points to any one actor and or any one state. And if it would, you know, what big deal would it be? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these are American allies or just, you know, targets of intelligence gathering. Why would it be a big deal? Well, so in other words, Harrison... No matter 
which intelligence agency from whatever country it was that revealed this, it's much ado about nothing. Well, that's what it would seem, yeah. And, uh, but, except, you know, while reading that, this article, I even, I, you know, I was looking at this mention of country, you know, mysterious country, country A. Mm-hmm. And every time that that's happened in the past, um, it's been Israel. So I just immediately thought, oh, maybe it's Israel. Yeah, me too. And so, and that turns out it was Israel. And so the next day, I believe, there were articles in like New York Times, um, a couple other, you know, major newspapers saying that, oh, this country, this, the country was Israel. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that makes, you know, that makes sense. That makes a couple things make sense because ISIS actually has a tiny bit of territory in, in southwest Syria on the border of the Golan Heights. And uh, that's the only territory they have in any proximity to Israel. You know, everything else is in, you know, northern, northern Syria near the, where the Kurds are and, you know, Turkey above that. And then, of course, across the border with, with Iraq. And um, <clears throat> I don't even think there's any, uh, well, there might be a tiny bit of, um, you know, border area that they control with Jordan. Um, Maybe on the on the south end of that bit of the Golan Heights, I uh, can't remember for sure. Can't picture it in my mind. But they've got this little bit of territory uh, on the border with, um, you know, occupied Golan Heights. So essentially, Israel, de facto Israel, and this is the region where that um, was referenced by Moshe Yalan um, when he said that, you know, the, well, he implied that the you know that Israel has a pretty good relationship with with ISIS because. You know, they'll every once in a while they'll be they'll receive fire from uh, you know the Syrian army near the Golan Heights. But then you know the one time that that ISIS accidentally fired from their positions, you know, on the border with the Golan Heights, they apologized to the Israelis. And of course, um, that entire Golan Heights region it's it's uh, controlled that southern bit by ISIS, and then the whole northern bit by Free Syrian Army. And you see those pictures. Uh, we've seen pictures for years of. Not only, you know, Al-Qaeda, you know, Free Syrian Army guys crossing the border to get medical treatment in Israel and, you know, chatting it up with the, chatting it up with the, you know, Israeli security guards on the border and kind of crossing over and, you know, meeting with politicians and, you know, just totally absurd stuff. Um, So there is some kind of relationship between ISIS and Israel on that little stretch of the border. But then it was revealed also that the city in question was Raqqa. Now, Raqqa is um, apparently where ISIS has moved all of its kind of top operations, top people. Um, that's where the the kind of command and control of ISIS is. That's where all the top dogs are. Um, but, you know, that now that they've, um, you know, fled from Mosul as it's, you know, getting closer and closer to being totally uh, liberated by the Iraqis and the you know, the popular mobilization units and the Americans. So what does all this mean? Well, so apparently the source of this intelligence was Israel. And in these new articles, it said that this source was, you know, basically had access to top-level ISIS uh, members. So that implies that the Israelis have an agent within ISIS leadership. Now, of course, for years the alternative media, uh, alternative media has been saying that, um, you know, kind of in a in a in a rhetorical over-the-top gesture that I that you know um, Israel created ISIS and controls ISIS, 
Well, you know, that's I, w- I wouldn't even say that's totally true, um, just from a just from a technical details oriented perspective. But maybe in like, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, you could say that's true. But of course, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that all you know every um, you know ISIS commander um, you know is on the payroll of of Mossad and just taking all their orders from Mossad. I think that's kind of a a cartoonish representation of things. Of course, there would I, I have you know no doubt that first of all that it would be possible and even plausible that there would be a working relationship, um, especially given you know ISIS's um, stated goals. I mean, it's just military strategy and tactics <clears throat> to you know find um, find allies where you can find them for your game plan at that moment, and um, you know these guys. I mean, the Mujahideen have been doing that for 30 years, more than 30 years. Well, I I just wanted us to clarify one thing, because uh, when you were discussing that, you mentioned that uh, Trump had divulged this um, this plot or new terrorist uh, methodology uh, by ISIS to Lavrov. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that we later found out that it was only um, the Washington Post Mm-hmm. Um, and the New York Times that had stated, in fact, that the information came from Israel, mm-hmm. that Trump didn't even mention that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll get to that in a sec. I've just got one point that I want to finish mm-hmm. with with this bit, um, just about the kind of the, the implications of this information. So the so this is the so, of course, the so the main the, the alternative media has been saying Israel's behind ISIS all along. This is the first time. Um, aside from those statements from guys like Moshe Yalan about the kind of working relationship or just, just the fact that Israel doesn't really, you know, isn't too worried about ISIS, in fact, that they would prefer ISIS to Assad. This is the first kind of hard, um, well, it's not, I wouldn't say it's hard evidence, but this is the first kind of um, strong indications of a real working relationship of some sort that there is an Israeli agent at the top level of ISIS leadership. And of course you can, you can take that wherever you want to take it. Um, but the, the, but that's kind of, that in itself is pretty breaking news that the Israelis have someone in top ISIS leadership. You could either see that as, wow, the, you know, the Israelis are, are you know, really gung ho about, uh, you know, getting Intel and fighting the war on terror. Right. Or you could see it as well, you know, this just goes along with the counter, you know, um, analysis or narrative that there is some kind of collusion between Israel and ISIS and that they serve similar goals. And maybe even some of ISIS's mm-hmm. goals actually serve a wider purpose um, of the Israelis, which is, of course, something that we've been saying for for years. Um, so there's that. Now, what, what you just mentioned, Elon, about this story, that's a whole other angle to it. Because when this first Washington Post story came out, there were kind of rumors and uh, leaks about the reaction that this that this caused. And the first was that everyone was freaking out. Now, the mainstream media was saying everyone was freaking out. And by this, I mean like people in the uh, Trump administration as well as, you know, the intelligence community. And the the... the <clears throat> official narrative was that they were freaking out because because it was a leak on Trump's behalf that Trump had revealed too much information to Lavrov. Mm-hmm. But um, guys like Mike Cernovich, who have also have sources 
you know, in the administration and in, you know, people with connections said that it's kind of the opposite, that the reason that the people were freaking out so much was because of this Washington Post article, that the Washington Post, whoever leaked this information to the Washington Post had inf- had more information and leaked more information than even Trump had. Mm-hmm. So he's essentially saying that Trump didn't have all this information, didn't leak it to Lavrov, had given Lavrov only the most basic publicly, mostly publicly available details. So Trump ha- hadn't even revealed all this information. And it only got revealed when this anonymous leaker leaked it to the Washington Post and I think some other newspapers. And while all that information wasn't published, the the amount of information published in all these newspapers was more than Trump even knew himself. Because like, uh, like these articles even admitted, this was a highly classified operation, according to them. It wasn't, it was like the Israelis had apparently said they don't want it shared with anyone, um, not even like the Five Eyes you know, intelligence sharing that the the U.S. has with New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the U.K. And so this was kind of their eyes only, and it was compartmentalized information. And so that what that means is that um, basically on a need-to-know basis, and even like the intelligence people involved would only give Trump certain bits of information unless he asked for more. Because, of course, they won't reveal all the information to Trump, you know, all the time. That would just just in this one area of government, which would be, you know, intelligence gathering and uh, things of that sort, you it would be impossible to give Trump all information. That's why you have, like, briefings. So they distill it down to the important information. And that's all that they would give him. If he wanted more details, he's, of course, um, allowed to or justified in uh, asking for more, and, he, and they would have to give it to him. But, you know, what are the chances that Trump actually did that? There's no indication that he did. They just gave him the basic information, and that's what... Um, you know, that's what he was going on, and and that's apparently what he told Lavrov. He didn't even know all the details. So whoever leaked this information leaked more classified information to the Washington Post than Trump himself even knew about. Mm-hmm. That's the story, according to guys like Mike Cernovich. That's illegal. So this top-secret intelligence some was leaked to the Washington Post. Now, depending on how that information was leaked, that means it was potentially available to some kind of, again, counterintelligence operation or intelligence operation run by, you know, a foreign enemy country. That is, is whoever leaked this information was essentially just, you know, putting it out there and it could have been intercepted in some way. So, so there's that. There's also the fact that by, pu- by putting the information in this form in the Washington Post article, it essentially created a scandal out of it, a scandal that wouldn't have existed without the Washington Post um, article in the first place. Because the whole point of the Washington Post article was that by releasing, by sharing this information, he's put this intelligence source at risk. Well, no one, even the Russians, would have known about this intelligence source if the Washington Post hadn't written about it. Mm -hmm. So the Washington Post was actually responsible for everything that they said that Trump was responsible for. So that's apparently why the Trump administration was going bonkers, um, you know, when this when this had happened, because the Washington Post had had leaked all this information. And that created, uh, you know, this this scenario that everyone was talking about. Now, I was just going to say that uh, there's been some speculation as to who, in fact, leaked the information. Mm-hmm. And some have pointed to H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, Trump's head of um, the Security Council, as well as, and, you know, he, he already sounds like a, a kind of a rabid warmongering uh, veteran of wars in, in Iraq and other places 
uh, one look at the guy and, and you get the willies. Um, there was also, uh, I think her name is, is it? Um, Dina Habib Powell. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Dina Habib Powell, who's also part of the administration. Um, who happens to be like friends with uh, Huma Abedin, Huma Abedin and, and, they, and, and the Clinton Foundation, mm-hmm. basically. So she, she has been uh, head of a Clinton NGO of some uh, description and uh, has a reputation for not only being incompetent, but, uh, but kind of sleeping her way to the top, as some have said. Um, so she's this kind of Republican version of Huma Abedin, this political mm-hmm. operative who's basically just there to feather her nest. Anyway, you have these two deep, uh, deeply embedded uh, people who could very easily have been responsible for uh, leaking these, uh, uh, this report to Washington Post. And it, it just kind of uh, underscores the fact that Trump is surrounded by and infiltrated by uh, a number of people who would seem to be absolutely determined to bring him down, um, but in the process seem to uh, shoot themselves in the foot, mm-hmm. um, as you were saying with the Washington Post article. I mean, the, the bigger scandal is that is that they even revealed all of this to the extent that they did. Mm-hmm. So um, this is this is part of the the dynamic that we're looking at here. Yeah. Well, and there were. There are a few, other, or at least a couple, other candidates for who the leaker was. Um, of course, it's impossible to know. Um, Mike Cernovich is one guy who's been covering this story, um, and he he thinks you know two other possibilities are um, another guy on the National Security Council, I think, um, and the other one is I can't remember his name at the moment, but he's the head of counterintelligence at the FBI, and because. The FBI has been has had you know this uh, long running investigation into uh, you know counterintelligence counter espionage investigation into Russia. That means that any you know relevant intelligence crosses this guy's desk, and he also has been like a long time kind of Clinton crony um, and implicated in other leaks, I believe. And so presumably this kind of information would have crossed his desk. So he's another candidate for who might have done it. But yeah, that just underscores the point that you just made a line about, um, you know, just the, the prevalence and the the prevalence of these kind of people that Trump is, is surrounded with and, uh, you know, the situation that he inherited when he became president. And so I think that's that kind of covers that angle. Well, there, there was one other story in foreign policy um, that in the intelligence circle that there were kind of shouting matches between the Israeli uh, intelligence and the American, you know, intelligence agent or officers, whatever, um, that the, the, the Israelis were um, uh, extremely perturbed that Trump had leaked this information and potentially put one of their agents at, you know, in harm at risk. And um, just that, you know, there was, that's just a little tidbit, you know, that the that foreign policy had put out from you know one of their sources. Now that gives a different picture to the the kind of rosy statements, official statements coming out of the Israeli government that say, oh, you know, the, this is no problem. It's not going to affect our intelligence sharing relationship. We have a great relationship with the U.S. Blah blah blah. 
which is probably the case. I mean, uh, I don't see, you know, the, the Israelis kind of pulling out with any kind of agreement with, with the U.S. for this kind of reason. Um, but that does, that's not to say that it won't cause, and that it, that it won't or that it hasn't caused um, some, just let's just say, like ill feelings within the, you know, the intelligence community. Um, that seems to be the case, um, especially if you look at the, the non-official or unofficial statements um, coming from many Israelis um, who are just you know, horrified that this could happen. Because, I mean, that's just the way Israelis are. Um, it seems, you know, you know, they value the life of every every Israeli, right? And if, if one of them dies, then then uh, then they'll make a big deal about it. You know, naturally, you'd, you'd think any country does, but Israel just seems, uh, you know, particularly over the top about it. Um, whether it's, you know, um, comes from any kind of genuine genuine feeling or it's just kind of, I, I just see it as just kind of the persona that Israel likes to portray, portray itself as, um, you know, this, you know, they, they, they they're, kind of this patriotism and um, this over-the-top um, ickness of, you know, whatever whatever it is. But Well, they're, they're also the only democracy in the Middle East, right? Yeah, yeah. so they've got to they keep it up. So there's that. Um, well, I thought I would just comment a little bit on the, um, on the fallout because uh, after all of this occurred just a few days ago, uh, we hear Putin... Uh, coming out with a yes. statement, yeah. uh, which was quite important. He was at a at some kind of press conference or of some sort, and and said that he would be willing to uh, submit to U.S. Congress um, a full transcript of the meeting that Lavrov had with Trump. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, th- there weren't any recordings of the conversation. So basically, you know, what's common protocol is to have um, each side of a visiting nation and, and the White House have their own stenographers or, or people who write in shorthand to just take down everything that's been said as a matter of historic record, because mm-hmm. the, these meetings are, are very important to uh, to kind of trace the developments of policies and for uh, historians to look back on and, and make reference to. So um, basically, th- this has been met with uh, rejection and um, and viewed as uh, Putin just kind of trolling uh, the 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 U.S. government uh, with his offer to uh, present an actual uh, transcript of the conversation. But um, even if that was the case, and it might have been just a little bit. Uh, the, the argument could be made that he was also completely serious about it uh, as if to say, look, you know, we have a record of what was discussed. You can quickly uh, just verify it and check it against your own uh, kind of recording of the conversation. End of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he went on correctly to comment that, no, because the U.S. government, because you guys are, are at war with yourselves uh, and, and you're either too stupid to think about this or you're too dangerous or both, uh, that's not something that you're, that you're willing to do. Uh, and he didn't address the U.S. directly, but this was kind of a, a comment that, about the state of U.S. thinking. So um, at the top of the show, I mentioned that, uh, that little anecdote about uh, my 
my pathological friend. Um, and, and that's, I think what, uh, you know, what someone like Putin and, and Lavrov are, are trying to do or have tried to do. And, and that is just to set the record straight. It was like me getting my mom on the phone to explain quite simply, you know, no, this is the case. End of story. You don't have to, you don't have to keep, uh, harping on it. But when you're dealing with a, a, a pathological persistence uh, that continues to insist that things are a certain way only because they want it to be that way, there is no rational or reasonable approach to it. There's no amount of data. There's no amount of, of uh, discussion. There's no amount of, uh, of clear-headedness um, and, and peaceful overtures that's going to make one whit of difference. And so um, that's exactly what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. It's extremely dangerous uh, to the U.S., as, as Putin pointed out. He also said that, uh, you know, quite rightly also, uh, it's not up to us to decide how things are run in the U.S. We can only, we can only try and help. It's up, to the, it's up to the American public. And if Trump were allowed to do his job, then people can make a reasonable assessment about whether or not he's a good president. But as it is, and, and this is another big issue with all of this, Trump is constantly being compelled to answer to accusations. He is constantly uh, made to feel uh, defensive about everything he does and says. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and this, isn't, this isn't to say that I think he's going to be a particularly good president, even if he's uh, not hamstrung. Um, but as it is, we'll never know because this uh, war of, of, um, that we're seeing through the media uh, being made against Trump uh, is relentless. And it will not end until uh, he is either impeached or taken out in some other way. And I'd add one thing just to kind of um, reaffirm the point you just made, that I think that the, the rejection of Putin's offer to provide this transcript is probably the biggest suggestion we can get, that the, that the Americans are just completely lying about what went on in this conversation. Because like you just said, the... The, by presenting this transcript directly to Congress or the Senate or, you know, whatever oversight committee would receive it, they would, they would be able to verify completely what was said and what wasn't. Because they've got the two transcripts from two independent sources. Mm -hmm. They can look at transcript A and say, oh, it's the same as transcript B. These, these were produced separately by, you know, separate, um, you know, I individuals with no collusion between them. Mm -hmm. And that's what was actually said. So if you imagine the, the kind of subconscious thought process that's going on in these people's minds, it would be something like, oh, okay, so they, this is what's, pre what's presented to them. Oh, here's an offer for, you know, uh, a, a record, a transcript of exactly what was said at this conversa in these conversations. You can then see exactly what was said and then either confirm or deny the, the alleged leaks that say what, was, what took place and what was said. And then in their minds, they say, okay, well, but no, we can't do that because because we already know what what, what happened, and that might that might 
um, reveal that what I think happened didn't happen. But because I already know what happened, I can't see that because it might, you know, it might burst my bubble about what I know already happened. So they're just stuck in this complete, like, con- uh, like confirmation bias bubble where they think they know what happened and they will only accept evidence or, you know, other facts that confirm what they already believe. And anything that threatens to, to burst that bubble and say that they're wrong, they can't accept and they must reject. So the fact that they're rejecting the the chance to actually figure out what actually was said just says that they're that they're that they're either lying about it or they're just so happy and so pleased that they know what happened from some anonymous source that they're willing to go with that story over what actually happened. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's it's extremely likely, you know, probably as close to certain as you can get without um without seeing the actual evidence in front of you that Trump revealed nothing of the sort and that he and, and both he and the Russians are being truthful when they say nothing, you know, nothing very major was released. He basically just talked about this, this plane bomb threat that everyone already knew about already. It was public knowledge. So it's just another like complete farce. And that's why in the description, we kind of went a bit, uh, had, a, had, a, had a little bit of fun, um, you know, lampooning these people because it seems that they get some kind of like, uh, some kind of, um, well, without being vulgar, some kind of like self pleasure out of out of this kind of um, masochism. Um, I was on the health and wellness show on Friday where I, I talked about a book that you know I recently read by the anthropologist Ernest Gellner on postmodernism, called Postmodernism: uh, Reason and Religion, I believe. And <laughs> repeatedly throughout the book, he he it's just hilarious the way he portrays postmodernists because he, he essentially characterizes them as these kind of, um, well, I'll call it, call it like mental masturbators, um, who, who derive a sense of pleasure from the fact that they can't, that, that there's no truth and that they can't get to the truth about anything. And that the, the, the fact that they fail to understand the other with capital O gives them some kind of like, um, some kind of self-satisfaction at their own failure and that that is the the, the kind of the the timis the, the 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 essence of postmodernism is this kind of the, the the derivation of pleasure from failure and from um uh kind of total ineffectualness that the the fact that you that you can't do something that you can't understand something and that understanding itself is impossible leads to this this deep dissatisfaction that is actually pleasurable because that's the the goal that you actually set out to prove. And there's the same kind of sick self-satisfaction from these people who, um, who somehow are afraid, like terrified of, of Russian control and intervention. And uh, the fact that their president is, is an agent for, for the, 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 the United States biggest enemy and this is the most horrible thing that they can imagine, but it gives them some sense of pleasure that they're right about it and that Trump is, is this evil person. So they, they would actually be more disappointed if Trump wasn't a Russian agent. The fact that he is a Russian agent makes them um, you know, ecstatic. It gives, it gives them some kind of mystical pleasure and um, uh, you know, m- mystical union with, well, with the lie is what it actually is. But it, it, it's, it's, it's really disturbing to watch um these people um derive this sense of pleasure from this absurd well situation you have to wonder if at some level uh they do realize the deep uh 
their own deep failures in kind of creating any kind of constructive, meaningful uh, uh, life for Americans at large, and um, or at least are in fear of being perceived as not living up to their responsibilities. Uh, and maybe I'm projecting too much of a too much onto these people. I don't know, but but that it becomes much easier in the minds of of some of these pundits and politicians to uh, to find the scapegoat, to find the uh, to project the shadow or the darkness outside of them in the form of Putin and Russia, uh, that it almost becomes this um, this uh, pathological drive to um, to kind of cast out uh, whatever their own failures are onto this uh, onto this other. And so that need is so compelling um, <clears throat> as they as they experience it that they'll do anything to uh, to bolster this image of an evil Russia to mm-hmm. just to take the light off of their own uh, abysmal failures with yeah. with most of the U.S. population saying that they don't trust politicians that uh, the U.S. Congress has failed uh, and presidents have failed. Uh, the, the population of the U.S. miserably, mm. especially over the last 15 or 20 years. Yeah, what it pretty much comes down to is that their inability to take personal responsibility for the fact that they are responsible for pretty much everything that's wrong about American society. Mm-hmm. And that's a big responsibility to take on. And naturally, any person, well, the vast majority of people in that situation being responsible for that much would refuse to take responsibility and would find an external scapegoat on which to put that responsibility that's just human nature and that's what i wrote about in my uh you know my series on uh hystericization and uh, uh you know ponderology and and uh the, the fourth turning and steve bannon uh, you know a couple months back but yeah that's i think that's exactly what's going on to well to a large degree then there are those who are just um you know psychopathic and just do it because it's in their nature and, uh, you know, without any of those kind of emotional motivations, they just they, they, they know the game and they're willing to play it. Right. Well, um, you know, as you were uh, mentioning all of that, Arison, I was thinking about the, um, the 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 numbers of times that uh, next to all of these announcements and accusations and and hysteria and aspersions and paranoia that's been attributed to Trump's possible uh, or probable connection to the Russians, uh, we've actually had a whole slew of statements coming from the New York Times and uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan and uh, the Director of of Intelligence James Clapper and David Nunez and James Comey and Adam Schiff and uh, and Maxine Waters. Um, a lot of these people who hate Trump. Who have reviewed the objective facts about uh, the accusations leveled against Trump, and who said, "You know what? We really don't have any evidence mm-hmm. of it." And yet, after all that, we still have this uh, this complete uh, explosion of, of uh, waste matter coming out of uh, Washington mm-hmm. Post and other places, uh, further continuing this. This Trump-Russia narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it, it really shows that. The, well, it shows that, and the other thing it shows is that 
that um, these people that they don't have that much because the, the things that they that they bring out as huge stories are re- they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel to get them. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that can bring us to um, the recent um, James Comey kind of well the, the news about the the whole developing James Comey story, the fired you know FBI director. Not job Comey, as he's now going to be known, because <clears throat> first of all, the the big scandal <clears throat> was that Trump fired Comey, <coughs> excuse me, because of this Russia investigation, and he wanted to, I guess, you know, take out the head of the FBI so that no one else would investigate him, which is doesn't make any sense in the first place. Um, and the the first proof. For this, which was revealed in a leak, was that Trump, in a conversation with Comey, you know, several months months back, had said that he hopes that this whole Flynn, you know, investigation will go away, right. and strongly implying that uh, that Trump was trying to get <clears throat> Comey to to block the investigation. And of well, first of all, this is totally unverifiable because it was in an alleged an alleged memo that Comey had written himself after this meeting that was then um, read by someone to uh, a journalist over the phone, and that journalist then published the story about it. The journalist himself never actually saw the memo. He was just talking to someone who who was alleged to have read this alleged memo. So, so far, this memo, we don't even know if it exists or not. Second, even if we go, even if it is true, and you look at what Trump allegedly actually said, he said, uh, like his direct quote was simply an expression of, well, I hope that this, you know, I hope that, um, you know, that this eventually goes away. I hope that Flynn, you know, this investigation eventually leads to nothing, which is a, which is a natural, a perfectly natural statement given that, Trump, that Flynn did nothing wrong and Trump being his friend and like employer would naturally hope that nothing bad came out of it. It would be absurd to think that Trump would hope that Flynn would go to jail or to be fired or whatever for whatever reason. Um, it, it's just it it it's totally against human nature. No nowhere in this alleged memo did Trump say did Trump either order or tell you know Comey to to lay off this investigation, even by the words of the memo as they've you know come through the media. So there's no evidence that Trump was um, trying to obstruct justice. And even then, on May 4th or 5th, Comey had testified that um, at no point did he feel that there that there was any hint from the Trump administration to obstruct justice. He'd actually said this. And this was after the time that he allegedly had this conversation with Trump. So according to Comey himself, there were no attempts at obstruction of justice. And then this me- this memo just happens to come out after, you know, after Comey's fired. So that in itself is suspicious. So they're really going after this Comey thing. And then after this, um, another anonymous leaker says that who allegedly read the transcript of the Lavrov-Putin um, uh, conversation, which which supports the idea that there is a transcript that that could, that could then be compared with the Russian transcript to verify any any of these statements. This person who allegedly read the transcript told another journalist that in this conversation, Trump had called Comey a nut job. And made some kind of vague, not really easy to understand statements about how this Russia thing is killing him, and they're they're really going after him for this Russia thing, and there's nothing to it, and and I'm not under investigation by the FBI, and I fired Comey, and 
while there's you can't really draw too much from this these little snippets of converse, of, of alleged conversation that don't have any context the narrative that's being surrounded uh, that's being put around all these statements is that um, Trump basically was implying that he fired Comey because he wanted this Russia investigation to go away, which again is total nonsense because just by taking Comey out of the equation, you're not going to get rid of, you know, all any investigation if they actually had anything on him. I mean, think about it. If, if Comey actually had the dirt on Trump and then Trump fires him, mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that dirt is just going to suddenly disappear? No. I mean, to- Comey's going to do something with it and other people have it. Well, I, I would say an, an argument could be made for the idea that underneath uh, or under Trump's employ, Comey, uh, who's, who, is, who is serving the U.S., who is also serving Trump, uh, is basically um, uh, running or helping to run a witch hunt against Trump, uh, which, which hampers anything that Trump would try to do. So uh, I would say even if even if that was a motivation on the part of Trump to get rid of Comey, um, because Comey's supposed to be, you know, at least uh, trying to do a, a decent job as head of FBI, um, you know, I would, in my mind, that that would be a legitimate reason. Uh, he's wasting, a, he would be wasting an incredible amount of, imagine being Trump and knowing you don't have any connections to the Russians. And knowing that there's this guy who you have the ability to fire, who is in fact trying to prove something against you that isn't correct and is not only damaging to your presidency, but to the entire functioning of of the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- there is that dimension. But, you know, as you said, Harrison, uh, it, w- whether or not he fired Comey for that reason, uh, he knew the attacks were going to continue as they are. Um, everything that Trump is, is saying or doing will be twisted or questioned or put into some particular light, uh, which will somehow make him a villain, a bad guy, uh, impeachable, uh, uh, deserving to be impeached, uh, anti-American, pro-Russian, uh, choose your, choose your favorite, uh, you know, kind of derogatory, um, label. So... And now, having said that, uh, there there is a lot to suggest that Comey was, in fact, this kind of probably not so different from many other people in Washington. Uh, this kind of wishy-washy uh, servant of of elite uh, causes and aims. Yeah. Um, under you know under the Bush administration, he. He said while he's against torture, he, he wasn't going to go against it in any significant way. Uh, they held uh, Jose Padilla, um, who was accused of terrorism for a very long time in prison without uh, any formal charges being brought up. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that was the case. And there are people even within the FBI who, who have absolutely been uh, irate at the fact that he sat on information regarding Hillary Clinton for so long. And, um, and that wouldn't have been a politicized move if, if he had, if he had um, not gotten in the way of an actual legitimate investigation of uh, Hillary's whole um, kind of 
being so uncareful about her emails uh, and, and having her own server. Um, so the guy was, by all accounts and, and by insiders, an incompetent, a political kiss-ass, uh, and, and motivated by all the wrong things. Um, now, as Joe said on the show last week, uh, that's usually who, who one would expect to actually run the FBI. You know, if, if you take Herbert Hoover as any indication, I mean, this guy was a, this guy was a monster. Uh, this guy wrote, uh, some horrible pathological, we think, letters to Martin Luther King. Um, he, he subverted, uh, um, social justice movements in the U.S. and infiltrated groups and and uh, God knows what else. So maybe compared to a guy like Hoover, uh, Comey isn't such a bad guy. I don't know. Um, but, but certainly uh, you'd think that um, Trump would be allowed to fire this guy and, and not get the kind of blowback that he has. Mm-hmm. Well, technically... Uh, you know, from what I've read, Trump has Trump can fire the FBI director for any reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just in his power as president. Um, I'd just say a couple things about Comey. One that, on the one hand, he is kind of the prototypical FBI director. Um, on the other, I'd say that while he has made bad decisions, he also probably has made good decisions. Like he hasn't been a, a total villain or hero on either end of the spectrum. Uh, the reason I say that latter point is is um, something that Trey Gowdy said on the news recently. He said that because you know from his presi- from his position, um, I think he's on like one of the intelligence you know oversight committees or something. But he had he had access to all kinds of classified information. Gowdy, that is uh, information that Comey also had access to that he can't reveal. But Gowdy says that um, when when Comey made the decision last July, I believe it was. Um, I can't remember what um, what the it was the the hearing that he gave where he basically was answered a whole bunch of questions saying on the one hand saying that um, pretty much laying out all the all the evil illegal things Clinton did but then making the decision not to not to go forward with charges or something like that he says that with the information that uh, that Gaudi knows that that Comey knew mm-hmm. that he actually thinks Comey made the right decision and he made a good decision. Um, by doing that, and that um, that if people knew all that information, they'd have a more um, they'd have a, a better picture of Comey and a more kind of sympathetic view of Comey for that particular decision. You know, Gaudi himself even said, you know, he's disagreed with Comey on many things, but on when it comes to that, he thinks that the that uh, Comey actually made the right choice and did something good. And that, uh, and then the the news anchor said, "Oh, what are you saying? Are you by what you're saying, it sounds like." Um, there are some some bigger ties um, that we don't know about between the Clinton campaign and the Justice Department's, like some kind of level of collusion going on. And Gowdy says, "Oh, you're very perceptive," and kind of smiles as if that was it. So there's something more to that. Essentially, being that um, there was even more, like a, a, an even more sinister connection between the, the Clinton and the the DOJ mm-hmm. that um, that led Comey to to behave in certain ways in order to to allow um, you know, certain things to continue going forward that the DOJ may have um, have then, you know, uh, put the quash on and stopped for, for political reasons. But there was that. Um, but, but on the other hand, 
um, the first point I made is that Comey is kind of a prototypical FBI director. And if you look at the, the way that the FBI works, um, in the, their most high-profile investigations and cases, what they seem to do is exactly what Comey does, is that they're, they're the ultimate um, fence-sitters. You know, they're sitting on, suit, on two stools. They're hedging bets. Mm-hmm. And you can see this in um, what Sibel Edmonds has revealed about the, about the FBI. Because when she was with the FBI... She says the FBI had um, kind of counterintelligence investigations going on several high-level people, including Doug Hastert, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, um, like 10 others, high-level people in Congress, the Senate, um, think tanks. And these people were all engaged in criminal activity, um, weapons smuggling, um, you know, drug operations, uh, covert operations, like just uh, bad stuff and, and foreign um, – um, you know, working for foreign intelligence agencies, and that the FBI, the FBI had all this information, had all the dirt on all these people, but never did anything with it. Well, because they couldn't, or or because they they wouldn't. Uh, one of the two, you know, for political reasons. But that seems to be the the way the FBI operates. Like the FBI traditionally, like under Hoover, has been uh, just a big blackmail operation where they gather dirt on everyone, so they they are able to potentially go after any of these people but they do or don't for various reasons. So the FBI has all the dirt on everyone, um, but they, they'll kind of, you know, depending on the situation, they either will or won't go in, in, in any direction. So they just seem to be this kind of wishy-washy um, uh, organization that, from one perspective, you could see them as just being uh, totally politicized and, and ineffectual at the same time. And that's what a lot of people see the FBI as, <clears throat> as a result of this Clinton investigation, where they undoubtedly um, and, and admittedly, and admittedly um, found all kinds of evidence of, um, you know, criminal behaviors on the part of Clinton and her associates, but didn't and wouldn't do anything about it. So there's that. Now, Maybe that can transition into our last topic. Well, I, I just wanted to quickly comment on that, Harrison, because, um, you know, the Wall Street put out this idea uh, several years ago about being too big to fail. Uh, in other words, you can't shut down these banks. You can't arrest these people because we're simply too big and important to how things work in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, don't do it. And so in that manner, they convinced a lot of people not to prosecute the high crimes uh, that that Wall Street has been perpetrating, and especially in, in the 2000s, in creating these these bubbles and, and these ridiculous uh, high leverage derivative uh, investments that have that have wiped out much of Main Street. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I I just question in my mind when you said that Trey Gowdy. Uh, said of Comey that he made the right call in not pursuing uh, some of these uh, Justice Department um, shenanigans. If if even among people like Trey Gowdy, who seems like he's on the up and up, that, that there is this kind of, no, this will cause too much instability and the Department of Justice really is too big to fail and, and we can't afford to... Uh, to create um, any any greater lack of confidence in these institutions, um, so that's where I went with that. 
And my answer to that would be, and of course, it's easy for me sitting here to, to say these things. Uh, I'm not sitting where, where Trey Gowdy is. But for me, it's, you know, uh, short of uh, short of any kind of uh, revolutionary act, uh, these institutions do need to be brought down. They do need to be, people de- do need to be uh, prosecuted and, and the swamp needs to be drained. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So why don't we? Well, yeah, speaking of, of swamp draining. Yes. Well, so while all this stuff with Comey was going on, um, Seth Rich came back into the news. As Ilan mentioned at the top of the show, Seth Rich was a DNC staffer. He was working on something like some kind of voting technology to, to get voters to vote. And um, and just like a week or so before the WikiLeaks, one of the big WikiLeaks, um, you know, leaks of DNC emails, he was killed in Washington um, in what was called and has been called a, a botched robbery. He was shot in the back four times and left to die in the streets. Nothing was stolen off of his body. Uh, he still had his wallet with like $2,000 in it and or some amount of money and like a $2,000 necklace. So he wasn't robbed. Um, he was shot in the back. And the the police found him. He was still conscious and breathing when they found him, and he died in the hospital. A week or so later, this massive, you know, Democratic National Convention email leak happens, and that WikiLeaks, that WikiLeaks puts out. Sometime later, Assange, in an interview on TV, strongly hints that Seth Rich, Seth Rich was the leaker, um, without explicitly saying so. He kind of danced around the issue by saying, oh, I'm just saying that our sources subject themselves to you know, big risks by doing these kinds of things. And But as Scott Adams points out, when you watch the video and the, the interviewer asks him, oh, are you saying Seth Rich was the leaker? Assange nods his head and then gives his kind of like evasive response. So it was, it was very clear, at least at that time, that, that Assange was strongly hinting that this was the case. So now this this comes in the news again, right as all this all this the renewed leaking starts happening and the Comey thing, um, almost as if there was some kind of timing to it. What happened is that this uh, investigator, um, ex you know Washington Metro Police or something guy that was allegedly hired by Seth Rich's family to help in the investigation, says that he has sources in the FBI and and police that say that that there are emails on. Seth Rich's laptop that confirmed that he was in contact with um, a WikiLeaks, you know, team member, and strongly hinting that Seth Rich was the leaker, and that there were there were like something like like forty five thousand e- emails sent to this person with you know twelve thousand attachments or something like that, which is exactly what was released by WikiLeaks. Um, of course, there's been no official confirmation of this. No one has access to Seth Rich's computer. In fact, this guy doesn't even know where Seth Rich's computer is. But this made big news. It was released, it was a, a Fox News kind of breaking story. And several people have come forward now confirming it or saying that it has a high degree of probability of being true. One of whom is Kim.com. On his Twitter, he says, yeah, he knows that th- th- this is true. Seth Rich is the leaker. 
he says that he knew Seth Rich personally and was personally involved in this entire thing, and he knows that he leaked this information to WikiLeaks. He's, Kim.com says he's speaking with his lawyer on Monday, his lawyers, and we'll be, we'll be making a statement on Tuesday about it. We'll see if anything comes of that or if he's just kind of blowing hot air. But, you know, it seems at least plausible that um, that he may be telling the truth. We'll see. So this is in the news again. And if it is, of course, two of the... Um, Big implications are that, first of all, as you know, we've been saying from the very beginning, as have others, that this DNC leak was not a hack by the Russians. The Russians had nothing to do with it. It was an internal leak by a disgruntled insider who was, um, it seems at this point, in all likelihood, Seth Rich, who was then murdered. The fact that he was murdered right after this leak is very, um, let's say, suggestive to put it um, mildly, because who would want Seth Rich dead in order to essentially assassinate him, execute him on the street just days after he'd leaked this information? Well, in one of the Podesta emails that got leaked in a, in, I believe it was a different leak. I'm not, I don't, I can't remember. I'm not sure if I, I just from reading the articles, I haven't been. It's not entirely it, clear to me whether it Seth, was a, a different leak. Yeah, it was. It was a leak by <clears throat> intelligence officers. Yeah, or so, for the Podesta kind, emails. For the Podesta emails. Yeah. yeah. So in these Podesta emails, there's this one where Podesta writes, "This is in 2015." So I don't think you know, not related to Seth Rich, but in a different context, in a discussion, um, Podesta writes. Um, I'm definitely for making an example of a suspected leaker, whether or not we have any real basis for it. So there's there's Podesta, you know, being John Podesta, essentially saying, well, even if we don't know if some individual person's a leaker, I think we should make an example out of him. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be exactly what happened with Seth Rich, who we presume um, people probably knew was the leaker. So mm-hmm. they had some basis for it. And if that's that was John Podesta's, you know, thoughts on any potential leaker, you know, what might they or, you know, the people around him think of a, a real confirmed leaker? Would they make an example of him? Well, knowing, uh, well, knowing the Clintons' reputation um, for having anyone they don't like around them killed, then, you know, I guess at, at least seems plausible. Well, j- just a couple of points regarding that. Uh Around that same time, there were also like five or six other people who surrounded various scandals uh, or who were involved in various scandals uh, involving uh, the Clintons and the Clinton Foundation and people who were just writing about the Clintons who all died within uh, a short space of like two months. Um, And that includes Seth Rich. So... uh, you know, certainly it, it's been touted as uh, the Clinton body count conspiracy theory by by the mainstream media. But when you look at the pattern, uh, when you look of, at that um, that quote from Podesta that you just mentioned, Harrison, uh, we would be foolish not to consider uh, that uh, the Clintons uh, or their DNC cabal and the people behind them had had put a hit uh, and had indeed made an example of Seth Rich. Um, the very fact that not, 
nothing was removed from his person, his, his belongings, his money suggests that uh, the pure motivation uh, was just to kill him uh, and to make an example of him. It, it doesn't get more obvious than that. Um, there, there was another uh, individual that, that's come out to kind of corroborate a lot of all of this information, and that was uh, the United Kingdom's former ambassador to Uzbekistan, Craig Murray, who, who said um, that he went to meet with a disgruntled DNC staffer uh, at an American university in Washington and uh, met to discuss this matter in depth uh, and that the, the staffer in question was really upset at, at how the DNC handled uh, the, the sandbagging uh, or the kind of uh, political bumping off of Bernie Sanders during the campaign. A lot of people were very angry at, um, at the manipulations that the Clinton administration had, had pulled in order to put uh, Hillary uh, where she was. Um, so, you know, you have, you have the motivation, you have corroborating evidence. Uh, or at least statements on the part of uh, of Craig Murray. Um, it's looking really bad. But but this one story so much seems to to hinge upon the truth of it coming out right now. Uh, you have not only how uh, evil and ruthless uh, the Clinton clan is uh, in in sending a message to to people not to cross them. Uh, but you also have the whole, you know, Russian, Russia hacked our election narrative, uh, which goes or should go right out the window uh, if it comes out that that indeed it was Seth Rich whose information uh, was the leak, was the, um, you know, was was not Russia trying to undermine democracy in the U.S., that it was someone who couldn't stand the idea that Hillary Clinton would become the next president of the United States and felt compelled out of some conscience to, to share information that showed that, that she is a conniving uh, political hack motivated by the worst inclinations. So um, it's a huge story. Uh, we're following it. It's very interesting to see how it's being covered right now. Uh, there are a lot of articles coming out of the alternative media um who who are connecting all of these dots uh unfortunately the the family of seth rich who hired the investigator to to find out why their son was killed and how and by who um are also being represented by a uh, dnc uh operative um who you know whose job it is basically is to is to suppress or quash any question of of uh, Seth Rich's um, connection to the email leaks and more importantly the idea that he may have been killed on purpose by the by the Democrats or you know some allied uh, faction in the deep state some intelligence agency so um, there's that. And it's unfortunate uh, because they'll never get to the truth that way. 
uh, he'll, he'll do everything in his considerable power because he's right there, uh, with them to kind of block any kind of truth of, for coming out. Um, so, you know, this story might be dead on arrival, uh, considering the power that these people have to, to keep things from, uh, from truly bubbling to the surface. Uh, the, I think the, the investigator that the, that the rich family hired, um, is limited in his power to, uh, further the investigation. Um, he was told off the record by the police department that basically they've been given orders to not pursue the matter. Um, and it's either that police department in DC or the FBI that has the computer with all of Seth Rich's uh, emails on it. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, uh, for many people who can connect these dots, uh, it's an opportunity to see this dynamic at work, uh, even further. Um, and, uh, and just how awfully the, the, this game is rigged against, uh, against people who would rather see some good being done. One interesting thing about this whole, the revival of this story has been the timing. I mentioned it just in passing, coming at the same time that Comey, the whole Comey thing has come up. But um, <laughs> there's something else to it um, to, to keep in mind or just to you know add as a data point, and that's that, uh, well, accord, according to Mike Cernovich, who's been covering this story as well, um, he was told at, at a party, like at near the end of mid to end of April. So prior to April 20th, 21st, he was told that there was going to be a major story by the Washington post connecting Seth Rich to WikiLeaks. So he was told at this party to watch out for it on Monday, but that, uh, that he couldn't break the story that, you know, it was going to be a Washington post story. And so he had to kind of keep a lid on it until it was published. So he tweeted um, like that weekend, um, oh, something about Seth Rich, just very vaguely because cause he knew what was coming. But the story never came. And so it was only what, like a month later, just under a month, like three weeks later, that Fox News broke the story. So there's something, you know, if what he says is is true, um, I, don't, I don't have to see any reason why to doubt it. Um, there's something going on there where the story was apparently, apparently people knew about it and we're going to break this story weeks ago, but it was, it was, uh, wasn't published for whatever reason. And then Fox news brings it out right at the time of this Comey thing. So I think that, uh, maybe, I don't know who knows the Washington post for whatever reason, didn't publish the story. And then the, the and then Fox news had it also and sat on it for a few weeks and then released it right at this time. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, it seems to me that it's it's an explosive story potentially, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know that the implications are just that can be incredibly damaging to a group of very powerful people uh, if 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 people are you know using their their brains and and making the connections between uh, the murder and and um, and its significance to who the Clintons are. Um, and the fact that, uh, it goes against the whole, you know, Russia hacked a democracy narrative. So, you know, I, I could just imagine 
them kind of pouring over the information and and saying, okay, how do we how do we spin this? What do we say? You know, when is when is Fox News going to do their story? And uh, you know, what, how can we present this that um, that will that will put it in such a light that no one will uh, go too far with it? Uh, that's just what I suspect. It, or it could be, as you said, Harrison, that there is a certain element of timing to it. I don't know. Um, it does remind me a little bit of uh, the terrific documentary evidence of revision where you get to see in in real time sort of not in real time of course because it's a documentary but over a over the series of days uh just following jfk's assassination and rfk's assassination um how the media is is covering the story um now of course there are big differences between seth rich's murder and those of JFK and RFK, but um, but the fact remains that uh, they have to. It's their job to get in there and and present this in such a way, um, uh, in ways that they're being told to, um, that don't cast suspicion uh, for any other narrative, for any other story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing. Uh to draw from all of this is that the um, the persistence will not stop, and that any little any anything Trump does is going to be nitpicked to death. Um, they're going to be looking for anything, um, just as they have been, and that's just going to be the way things are. So it's going to be either more of the same, or you know, Trump is going to have to figure out how to do something to to kind of take control back from uh, these crazy people. And of course, that's kind of funny that, that I'd say that um, because many people would consider Trump a crazy person. Well, as crazy as Trump is or may be, I think that these people are much crazier. <laughs> and I think that's almost self-evident if you can just look at what's happening and how they're behaving. Um, with that said, um, well... In the chat room, we're probably going to wrap up pretty soon, but if there's anything that uh, the chatters would, any questions or comments or things that you'd like us to discuss before we end the show, just go ahead and post it <clears throat> in the chat room or call in if you've got a chance, if you've got something to say or something to ask, um, because we're kind of running out of steam here. <laughs> but what else is there to say? Well. Uh, former FBI director Robert Mueller was recently mm-hmm. assigned to head up the new uh, kind of um, investigation into the Russia thing, I think. Um, Mueller was FBI director under uh, Bush, Bush and Obama. Yeah. Uh, so he's another kind of political apparatchik uh, who I think would be directed to keep this uh, this fire burning um, and this narrative going. Um, I don't think any good will come of it, um, but uh, but who knows? Yeah, that could go either way. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, at the very least, you know, Alexander Mercurius at the Duran 
isn't too worried about it. He, he the positive that he sees in it is that uh, by doing this, Mueller has um, essentially said that he wants all of the public Congress and Senate investigations shut down because they will interfere with the uh, you know special counsel investigation, and that would remove all of these uh, hearings from the public, which would then um, um, kind of put an end to the constant stream of material that the the media would then be used to ramp up the hysteria. So that would be a positive, just in the sense that because the media wouldn't have access to these things, that they you know they wouldn't be able to create even more hysteria from them. Then, it, but you know that won't stop the endless stream of leaks coming out. No, um, that's all I really got to say about that. But uh, someone in the chat room, Ryan, had mentioned the Assange prosecution drop. So yeah, that's some news. Uh, Sweden has dropped their um, essentially arrest warrant for the the rape accusation against Julian Assange. So um, that's officially off the table now. But but even then, um, you know, Swedish prosecutors have said, well, if if Assange steps foot on Swedish soil again, that they may reopen it. So he essentially can't go back to Sweden. And the UK hasn't said whether or not they have received an extradition request from the U.S. So if he leaves the Ecuadorian um, embassy, he may or may not be arrested by the by U.K. police for extradition to the U.S. And the Ecuadorian government is, is uh, allegedly now trying to um, go into negotiations with the, the U.K. government to, to, to get him safe passage to fly to Ecuador. So all that's kind of up in the air. We'll see what happens with that. Um, well, there was one other story this week, which, uh, which, um, kind of raised eyebrows among many who hoped that, uh, that Trump's Tomahawk missile, uh, firing in in Syria was the end of it was a kind of a a one-off and and just a message. And that is that, um, the, the Syrian Arab army, uh, or, a a contingent of them was approaching, I, th- I believe it was the southeast uh, area close to the border of Jordan, mm-hmm. where they were um, they were approaching, I guess, some enclave of uh, of rebels, and um, and so they were bombed um, by air forces of the of the coalition um, and. Uh, who claimed that they were just defending themselves when there was no attack imminent of any kind. Uh, certainly it, it, it wasn't clear that the Syrian Arab army um, under Assad were going to willy nilly uh, get into some ground uh, skirmish or, or fire against us uh, forces. Um, so basically what you had there is this kind of total act of, of, uh, of aggression, you had several killed, several injured uh, from the Syrian Arab army on their own land, um, where the U.S. forces weren't invited uh, to to help defend them. Um, and so, you know, it begs the question: what is what is Trump doing uh, in in Syria, really? Um, or is there a certain level of control that he just doesn't have uh has he has he um you know has he kind of delegated a certain amount of 
of control over the situation there uh, to the military who would continue to support uh, rebels and ISIS uh, and, and uh, al-Nusra um, in order to continue uh, their plan to oust Assad in some way. Um, so it, it really is uh, disheartening even more in some ways than, um, than the Tomahawk, Tomahawk missile bombing. And on top of that, you had, you had coalition forces uh, dropping bombs and killing civilians a couple of different times in the past couple of weeks. Dozens of innocent civilians in Syria have been killed um, by U.S. coalition. Um, so it, it's, it's really, and it hasn't made big news in the West at all. Uh, of course, if, if by some chance the Syrian Arab army or the Russians had done this, um, then the Western media would cry, cry bloody murder. Um, but we know that they take great pains to, to protect civilians in Syria and have been really, aside from a few efforts by the UN, an incredible force for humanitarian aid and, and logistical planning and just getting people safe and fed and relocated where possible. Um, so it, uh, it's disheartening uh, for me uh, to, to read this news. And, um, and you have to wonder, you know, how much more clarity would be brought to Syria on the part of Trump if he wasn't distracted by so many other um, attacks uh, on the part of uh, U.S. media and deep state in the U.S.? Well, personally, I don't see it at this point as, as that big of a story. Um, on the one hand, the of course, the Syrians and the Russians are correct. This was illegal and illegitimate in the sense that the, the Americans are there illegally and illegitimately, and they have no right to be there. From a strictly tactical perspective of the situation on the ground, I think Trump probably had nothing to do with it because he has delegated authority to to you know, mil his military commanders just to pretty much do whatever they think they need to do in, a, in, the, in every situation on the ground. And from the sound of it, this was, uh, well, what had happened? Well, the American side of it, which I don't think has been contradicted um, at all, really, by um, either the, the Syrians or the Americans, or sorry, or the Russians, was that what had happened was that there was a kind of a convoy of Syrian army allied uh, militia group and this is right. this is either um i i, ha I haven't uh, i wasn't able to um, research exactly which group this was the name of it was released i think by al mazdar news so that may may or may, may or may not be true it was either a um well there are several possibilities it could have been uh, an iraqi group because the the syrians have been working with um iraqi uh, pmus popular mobilization units um, who are essentially Iranian-backed. They have Iranian support. Or it could have been a Syrian-Iranian uh, militia or just a Syrian um, militia group. And they had been, um, let's say, <laughs> what would be the word, driving in the direction of the American troops at this at this you know minor base in Al-Tanf. And that the, the Americans then saw this as a 
as a sign of aggression. And that they kind of take the Israeli route, which is kind of the South Park route. Oh my God, they're coming right for us. Um, which is ridiculous and illegitimate and illegal, like, you know, like they all say, but totally to be expected. Um, it sounds to me like this was more of a game of chicken. Um, you know, we'll see who, who fires first. We'll see if the Americans will really do anything about it. Cause why really would, would the Syrians, um, kind of, if they know the Americans are there with the American, you know, re backed rebels, why would they really be heading in that direction? Uh, I don't know. Um, and then the Americans essentially will say that they fired warning shots. Well, actually, the witnesses, too. So the like Sputnik and several Russian and Syrian sources interviewed witnesses that essentially corroborated the American account that f that warning shots were fired before um, before the, the the American jets essentially bombed the convoy. And so the, there's all that to consider. And the Americans had said, oh, well, this is, you know, these guys are, um, you know, backed by Iran and so and Hezbollah and that, that makes them evil. So you can at least see why the why the Americans would do what they did in that situation and they did say that it was essentially a one-off thing and this doesn't change our 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 grand strategy and even our efforts um to collaborate to whatever degree possible with the Russians. And and even then the Syrians are continuing their push in that direction of the the country. So um, I, th I see it more of like a testing of, of wills and boundaries. Like, what can we do? What can we get away with? Well, the Syrians came a little too close. The Americans got um, uh, a little indignant and uh, in their typical fashion kind of reacted in the only way they know how. And, but then the, but that's all they did. And the Syrians are still pushing in that direction and, you know, making their way to the border of, of Jordan, which would essentially create a new kind of pocket in that region. Because if you look at that area of the geography, that entire southeast is is currently controlled by um, Syrian rebels, so-called. Then to the north of that is ISIS um, in the region of Deir Zor. So what the Syrians are, are trying to do is kind of move east and south to kind of cut off that, that area where the, the between the rebels and ISIS. So if they were to do that, they would then be able to essentially move further south and cut and take back that territory from the from the rebels, which would leave the Americans on their base totally stranded on the the border with Jordan, with no access to um, Deir Ezzor uh, further north and east. So it looks like that's what uh, they're trying to do, and they haven't been um, stopped from doing that in the past couple of days. So that may eventually happen, and then that, of course, is in. Um, in line with the wider strategy in Syria for the the Syrian army to move east to Deir Ezzor by um, taking care of the um, the ISIS pockets kind of um, north and south of that little um, area of Palmyra. Because if you look at the map, Palmy the the Syrians pretty much control most of western Syria, and then there's like a little finger that sticks out in the center of the country towards Palmyra. And uh, like both to the north and to the south of that, there's ISIS groups. And then, of course, to the east of that. So in order to move east, they have to kind of consolidate that territory closer to the west. And as they do that, they can push forward and move to, to Deir Ezzor in the east. So it looks like that's what they're doing. And this, uh, this, this mobilization and this movement in the, the south and east of the country is part of that uh, wider strategy. 
So uh, if the Americans are telling the truth and that was kind of a one-off thing, as long as the Syrians don't um, kind of approach too closely to that little area right on the border of Jordan, <clears throat> you know, they may be able to um, continue with that strategy and, uh, you know, come to the to the aid of the the Syrian army and civilians who are currently besieged in their Azor. Well, I, I do fear that it won't be a one-off. That uh, that by the mere fact of the U.S. just continuing to insinuate themselves in the situation for whatever reason, uh, that that these skirmishes, these um, uh, these uh, accidentally kill civilians, uh, these uh, these kind of belligerent actions will just be uh, continued. Um, I, you know. I, you, you you can't you can't see any other uh, outcome of this, even if Trump has the best intentions there, and I don't know that he does anymore. Um, it just seems like you know you you put American forces in there; these things are are likely to happen. Um, so that's just my thought on it. Uh, I wish to heck he would just, uh, and I realize it's not a, a simple thing, but I, I just wish he would get out of there. Um, he recently met with the uh, with the um, Saudi prince in Saudi Arabia with Melania, and they had um, they had discussed new plans for a kind of uh, Arab NATO uh, uh, type of um, alliance. There, I don't know why he would uh, why he would make overtures uh, to consolidate um forces and to and to team up with saudi arabia uh, in this way i don't know if he's just saying these things to appear uh like he wants to bolster american israeli uh english french power in the middle east uh or if he's uh if he's just lost the plot um I think it's just one of those things that you can't change. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Saudi Arabia has been an American partner for, you know, 40 years plus years. And same with Israel. It's like, uh, I don't think anyone would expect anyone to just cut ties with, with a long-term American ally, just, uh, you know, just out on a personal whim. Um, even if it's, even if there would be good reasons for doing so, mm -hmm. it's that like, it's you just, that's one of those things that we've been talking on the show a few times where um, you, someone in Trump's position, like the leader of any country, you can't just, um, um, well, if you look at, at it in terms of territory, it would be like saying, okay, well, we're just going to get rid of Texas. It's like you hold on to as much as you have. You don't get rid of anything. You may try to change the the, the terms of the agreement or to make things even better, but it would be like kind of, kind of cutting off your arm in a sense, even if that arm is diseased and infected, at least you've still got it and you, you think you might be able to work with it. But I think the, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is just so tight um, for, for probably reasons of mutual blackmail above all, but that it's just one of those, um, you know, facts on the ground that can't be, can't be changed willy nilly. Yeah. Same with his, same with Israel. Well, I, I appreciate that side of the argument, and and uh, the other part of it is that uh, we've never heard such um, 
such rhetoric coming out of Saudi Arabia in regards to Iran uh, as we have uh, in recent weeks. Uh, you know, the war is going to be started in Iran or the, the conflict's going to happen in Iranian soil. And, um, and just this kind of war of words, which is how these things usually begin. Um, so, um, you know, that, that Trump would go in there and kind of boost the, their morale and sign these uh, arms packages. And yes, I realize he has to keep the military industrial complex happy. He has to continue to generate income, even, even among them. Um, it, it just seems to be, even if it's, you know, even if it's this diplomatic uh, kind of um, smoothing over uh, of certain uh, relationships in the Middle East, it just seems incredibly unwise. But uh, yeah, you know, your point's taken, Harrison. I, well, I, and I, I agree with that too. I'm trying to see both sides of this, certainly. I, I wouldn't say it was it's necessarily unwise mm-hmm. as much as it is just, um, what's the word, like unpalatable. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of gross. Um, but the, but, you know, in politics, a wise decision may be gross. Um, you know, just given all the all the all the contingencies and context, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know making a deal with the devil. They may not like it, but from their perspective, they may they you know they may see it as the only option, um, which doesn't make it a good thing. It just it just makes it uh, politics. And if anything, I think the the most disturbing thing has been the the continued um, you know anti-Iranian stance. So we'll have to see how that develops. That that'll be kind of that's like kind of my litmus, litmus test to see how um, how the whole Iranian situation pans out. Because I mean, <clears throat> either whether it's with Russia or even North Korea or China, there's been all kinds of rhetoric, but things, at least until this point, have seemed not to go in the totally um, uh, total disaster direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, relations with relations with China are relatively good. You know, there's no no sustained anti-Chinese rhetoric or you know um, amping up of conflict in the South China Sea. Um, the the rhetoric on North North Korea has died way down. Um, there are at least still overtures to Russia being made in in various from various people in the administration and Trump himself. And uh, it's only really Iran that seems to be still in the crosshairs. So that's the I think that's the one we'll have to watch out for and see what happens. But then again, uh, well, Tillerson just made a statement saying that uh, not that he plans to, but something like that he hopes maybe that uh, that he'll be able to meet with Rouhani um, sometime soon. So we'll see what comes out of that. And with mm-hmm. that said, I yes. think we should end the show for today. I agree. So uh, the takeaway is sometimes politics might be gross, but it may be wise at the same time. It's usually always gross. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Harrison. Uh, thank you, Chatters, for listening in today.